So I wanna ask, do any of you occasionally sit down and watch any of those cooking shows or baking shows, show of hands? few of you. Monica loves those. One of her favorite is this one that comes on the screen. It's the, yeah, there's the fans all over there. The, the British baking cook-off or whatever it's called. I can't remember. If you're not familiar with how the show works, they have contestants and usually there's like nine of them. And then they give them an assignment. Like, like let's say they're to cook a souffle or bake a souffle. And so then they give them all the ingredients and they give them a time frame. This is how much time you have to bake this souffle. And then the clock starts ticking and they go to work and they interview them. The, the hosts then moderate how it goes and they interview them on their progress and their strategies and what they're going to do and how they're gonna bake it so that they're gonna win the contest. And I remember when they were actually doing a souffle, there was one man who overwhipped, this is very important for all of you in case you're wondering, if you make souffle, overwhipped the egg whites. He had all the ingredients just right. He'd put them in perfectly, but he overwhipped it. And when it came out of the oven, the souffle fell and it tasted terrible. Through the years, I've met individuals who approach discipleship like baking a souffle. They come to church and they say, what are the ingredients for the best outcome? And so they learn that they're to pray and read their Bibles and come to worship and they began to apply those. They're told that there is a time frame, the day and hour nobody really knows. And so they work frantically trying to apply all these ingredients so they have this outcome that they long for, something that's tasty. And then oftentimes when it comes to that end, they find out that their labor was unsuccessful. It collapsed and all they were left with was tasteless religion. I'll give you an example of that met an individual recently, began to share with me that he was struggling in his marriage. He had difficulties in his profession. In general, his life was challenging. So I asked him, as a professing believer, tell me about your spiritual journey. What, what are you doing to foster your faith? He said, well, I've been praying, and I prayed that my marriage would get better, but after a week or two, it didn't improve, and so I just quit praying. And he went on to say, I, I read the Bible, I pick it up, but it's meaningless. I, I don't really understand it. It's, it's dry to me. God never speaks to me. And then he talked about worship and he said, a number of weeks ago, I, I went to worship and it was okay, but crisis continued to increase and I just didn't feel like going back. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I applied all of the ingredients for the recipe and I didn't get the outcome, the expected outcome that I was longing for. Hear me on this, Cornerstone family. Discipleship is not a recipe to follow. It's a relationship to follow. Can I repeat that? Discipleship is not a recipe to follow. It's a relationship to follow. The God of the universe has orchestrated your life and his truth so that you can be in relationship with him. And we're going to see that the recipe that I described, the elements of discipleship, of prayer, and Bible reading, and worship are merely avenues to fall deeper in love with your God. As we take a look at this, this is the reason why Paul begins with what he does. I wanna read, I wanna back up. We're gonna be looking at verses seven through 10, but I wanna back up to where we were at last week and I wanna read verses three through six 
And now with that idea, I want you to notice how rich the elements of relationship are and what Paul is emphasizing. We always wanna honor the Lord at Cornerstone and if you are able to stand, would you please stand with me as I read Ephesians chapter one, verses three down through six. Paul wrote, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse four, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to which the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Thank you, you may be seated. I wanna transition by revisiting an assertion I made last week. It's on your outlines, it comes on the screen. The assertion I made is that theology develops beliefs and ultimately that drives behavior. The context of that is that everybody has a theology. Everybody has a view of God, whether he exists or he doesn't. The trouble is that many have an inaccurate theology. Their idea of God is distorted. And if this is all about us having a relationship with God, a distortion of who God is is going to be problematic in relationship to growing in a knowledge and a relationship with him. As an example, it's possible that some of you have an idea of God that he is harsh and impatient. That was my view in my teens and early 20s, that God was this God that was constantly disappointed in us and he was just looking for a way to punish and discipline us. Now, if that's your theology, then you view your circumstances through that lens. Your belief system develops from that. So when you have a problem or you have difficulties, you go back to the idea that my problem's because God is mad at me, he's impatient, and this is a punishment because I don't do everything that he says. And then what ends up happening over the course of time, that belief system drives the behavior, and then ultimately that person says, I'm never gonna please this harsh and impatient God. I might as well just enjoy life, seek pleasure, and look for comfort because that's all there is. And they give up on God. Do you see how tragic that is? Because if you know anything about God, you know that nothing could be farther from the truth. He is a loving, benevolent God who seeks after us. And today we're going to see that he's gone over the, and above to show us his grace so that we can be in relationship. It's for this reason why Paul will spend the first two and a half chapters getting our theology correct, adjusting our view of God so that we can be in relationship. And these verses we're gonna look at, he's gonna answer three questions. Here's the first question and the answer comes with it. What did God do for you, Cornerstone family? God made a way. When it was impossible, when there was nothing that we could do, God paved the way so that we could have this relationship that I'm describing. Look at verse seven. Notice the two things. I'm gonna read just the first part of verse seven. Notice the two things that God did on our behalf. He says, in him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of our sins. Now, when we think about this, especially the comment, redemption in his blood, it seems like such an abstract and maybe even an offensive idea. So I want you to bear with me. I wanna give you some ideas and understanding of this abstract. I'm gonna do that by sharing first an illustration. Take a look at this picture. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's called the boot. If you ever travel into downtown areas like Los Angeles, there's a good chance if you do it frequently, you're gonna get a parking ticket. And if you don't take it seriously, this is ultimately what will happen. If you go five times, you get five parking tickets and you don't pay them, they will find your car and they'll put this boot on and you will not be able to move. And the reality is, is that you can't be freed from the boot until you have paid not only the five parking tickets, but the late fees, the fines, and the removal of the boot. And the average cost for that is over $1,000. One ticket, about $47. You continue to do that, over $1,000. Now, when I share that story, if you want to redeem your car, that's what's going to cost to pay the penalty. When we're talking about what Paul is saying is that you and I, metaphorically speaking, because of our sin, have the boots, that we can't move. We don't have freedom. We talked about last week that we don't have a free will. And what that means is that unless someone pays the penalty, we don't have that choice. And so what Paul is saying is that that's where Jesus Christ came in, that God understood because that sin separated us from God. It prevented us from having a relationship with him. And so God, at the very beginning of time, knew that you and I would not obey him and would sin. And he went on then to have this plan that his one and only son would then go to the cross and make the payment for our sins, that essentially he would remove that boot. And when you think about what he has done, it gives this idea that God has redeemed us. He's bought us back so that we can have this relationship and have this freedom. Now, we gotta come back to the statement through his blood and the idea that that seems odd, even offensive. And if that's the first time you've heard that, I would present to you that this is one of the reasons why many people, many professing Christians do not move forward. They don't progress in their faith because they don't understand. This is a primary doctrine a main idea of how we're saved. And so it's critical that you understand this whole premise of the blood, his blood. And you have to go all the way back to the garden to understand and comprehend that. Most of you are familiar with the story of creation and Adam and Eve, correct? And so in that place, we're told that they were completely naked and they knew no shame. There was innocence. And then, of course, Satan, the serpent, tempted Eve. And what did he tempt her to do? He said, eat from this fruit of this tree. What was the tree? The tree of knowledge of good and evil, good and evil. So when she surrenders to the temptation and her husband Adam does the same thing, immediately they have knowledge. And what's the first knowledge that they come across? What real evil is. They're looking at the face of evil. Their innocence is gone. The next thing they realize and experience is shame and guilt. Now they realize that they're naked. They feel and sense shame. What happened next, Cornerstone family, after they did that? What does the narrative tell us? They went and they got fig leaves. They sewed them together to cover their shame. 
So when God comes to look for them in the garden, he says, Adam and Eve, where are you? And the response is, we are hiding because we are naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? His question, his inquiry is to say, this is the result because you didn't obey me. You wanted to have knowledge. Now you have it. And the knowledge is that sin brings death, guilt, and shame. So you know what he did next? He took the life of an animal and he took the skins of that animal and he covered, he covered their guilt and shame. That is that he didn't rid it. He didn't make the payment for it. It's very much like we were just talking about in the metaphor is that the tickets were paid, but the penalty was not. Now you fast forward thousands of years later, Moses shows up, he presents the law. When he presented the law to the children of Israel, he says, this is the standard. This is why you struggle with guilt and shame and why you continue to sin is because God's standard is perfection and you don't meet that. You don't align with that. Now, I think probably all of us in the room and those online are familiar with that story, but you probably are not familiar that in the book of Leviticus, simultaneously to God giving the law, God gave the priest and Aaron particularly an assignment and the assignment was, is that annually, there was to be a day called the Day of Atonement. Jews still practice. They don't follow the ritual, but they still practice. It's called Yom Kippur. You've heard of that. It was actually just last month. What is the Day of Atonement? It started when the law was presented. And the priests were given assignment on that day to have two goats. Both of them had to be perfect, no blemish. One goat that you're probably familiar with was then sacrificed, and the blood from that goat was sprinkled on the altar of God, and it demonstrated the purifying against sin. But you know what happened to the other goat? The other goat, the priests were to lay hands on that goat, and they were to pray and symbolically transfer the sins of the nation onto that goat, and that goat was sent out into the wilderness, essentially saying that that goat was taking the sins away. And do you know what we call that goat? It is called the scapegoat. When you've heard that term, scapegoat, where does that come from? It comes from Leviticus in the Old Testament, where God did this. But I restate, it was merely a covering. It didn't take away the sin, and it didn't take away the guilt and the shame. You fast forward to the time of Jesus Christ, and this is the reason why we call Jesus the perfect spotless lamb that takes away the sin of the world. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus now became the sacrifice that actually could pay not just the tickets, not just the late fees, not just the fines, but the removal of the boot. He has paid all of it. All of it's been paid for. The writer of Hebrews, he writes a commentary on this. It's parallel to what we're seeing right here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. The writer of Hebrews makes a few comments about the time when those sacrifices were happening. So it's called Hebrews because he's writing to the Jews to help them to understand who their Messiah is, but he's also writing to Gentiles like myself that doesn't understand this whole sacrificial system. And so he says, did you figure out that the blood of bulls and rams never took away your guilt and shame. 
He says you have to have the blood in order to pay for sin, but all of that was just a foreshadowing. In fact, every time the Day of Atonement, it was a reminder to the whole nation they had sinned and they were guilty. And he said there had to be one who would make the payment to clear that. And we're going to see in a little bit that when that happens, that actually enables us to draw near to God. Our sin no longer separates us. And the reality is that that's the statement. For those that are freed by Christ, they are free indeed. Can I repeat that? If you're here today and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been freed from sin, you've been freed from guilt, and you've been freed from condemnation. You are free indeed. Now, as I make that statement, I come back to this big theological idea, and I say, so what? So hopefully you understand it, but so what? Of the people that have come through my office door in the last 26 years, one of the most common questions I get is that I keep sinning, and I feel guilty, and I feel shamed, and I feel condemned. And I want to give up. I don't want to keep trying. And I would argue today that the reason for that is they have not understood this primary doctrine. They've not understood it. They've not comprehended what is happening, what is taking place. There is no guilt, and there is no shame. Jesus Christ has paid for that. And so what ends up happening is that for those individuals that have not grasped that, we all sin. Can we be in agreement? It's not just in the past. It's in the present tense. We all sin. We fall short of God's glory. If you don't comprehend this doctrine, what will happen is that as you feel condemned, it doesn't matter what your sin might be. It might be getting angry at your toddler and losing your temper. It could be looking at an image that you know you shouldn't. It could be screaming and yelling at another driver on the freeway. Our sins are numerous. But when that happens, you feel this immediate guilt and shame. And if you don't understand this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your propensity is to pull back from God. Wouldn't you agree? Haven't there been times on a Saturday or Saturday evening when you've sinned and you think, I don't feel like going to church tomorrow. Last thing I want to do is go to church and have to have Pastor Bruce remind me of my sin. You don't want to read the Bible. You feel like, I, I don't deserve to read the Bible. That's the word of God, and I've sinned against God. You don't want to worship. That is a strategy of Satan, because Satan knows this doctrine, and he knows that if you really start drilling down what Christ Jesus has done, that actually gives you victory, because even if Satan throws in your face your worst sin, you come back to the fact that that sin, that ticket was paid for. But it's not just the tickets in the past or the present, it's in the future. They've all been paid for. And when you start claiming that promise, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, the temptation to go back to that sin is loosened because you know that Satan doesn't own you, that you have victory in Christ Jesus. And a momentum shifts from constantly pulling back from God to drawing near to God, and suddenly you realize that drawing near to God is your greatest source of victory. And that's what Paul is presenting when he says that we have been redeemed through the blood of Christ Jesus. So reflect on this question as it comes on the screen. 
Tomorrow, if you, don't, if you don't reflect on any of the others, take the time to reflect on this one. What impact does freedom from condemnation have? Go to the passage that I've asked you to in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at the fact that the writer, as he's talking about this same theology, says that you can have confidence in your faith, that you're actually invited by God to draw near to him. And as a result of that, there is no condemnation. Okay, what's the second question? What is Paul proposing? How did God do it? Well, God did it by imparting grace to us. Would you write that down? We have been given grace, and this is one of the greatest gifts that enable us to not only live out this Christian life, but everything else God has called us to do. I want to repeat verse 7 and go into the very first part of verse 8. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, verse 8, that he lavished on us, that he has given us the forgiveness of our sins in accordance, in alignment, note, with the riches of God's grace, riches of God's grace that he's lavished on us. So as we understand this, there's a couple of, couple of ideas and words I want you to know. The first one is plutos. It's the Greek word for riches. It's a noun. Say that with me. Plutos. Say it again. Plutos. And this noun speaks of an abundance. It's difficult to try to find a synonym of that idea. But what Paul is trying to say is that there is an abundance of grace. There's an overflowing of grace. Look again at the verse as he goes on. That he lavished on us. Lavished on us. Perisuo is the verb for lavished. Now, bear with me, okay? I realize that it's, what time? 10.13, most of you haven't had your second cup of coffee and you're just hanging on. So just bear with me, bear with me. Perisuo, it's an aorist indicative, aorist active indicative. And you're like, oh, seriously, Pastor Bruce. Remember, you're gonna bear with me, okay? Why do I say that? Because the English language does not have the aorist tense in the verb. Basically, the aorist tense means that it was an action that was completed that has ongoing continual implication. Look again, how is it translated here? It has an ed on the end, right? It makes it sound as if it happened in the past. Its execution was in the past, but it's ongoing. The fact that it's active indicative, essentially what it's saying is that it is ongoing continually. And when it talks about the abundance, it never ends. It's an emphatic idea. Not just do you need grace for the past or for the present, you need grace for the future. And what Paul is saying in, in this idea, it's something that's real. It's not supposed, it's not anticipated. It's absolutely real and accessible. God's grace is not just sufficient, it's an overflowing abundance. Now, let me just ask you a question. Do you need God's grace? Oh, Sunday school answer. Yes, of course, you need God's grace. But let's unpack that a little bit. You need God's grace for salvation? Were you the worst of sinners like the apostle Paul? Are you afraid that if somebody found out what you really did, that you would be ousted? Can I say to you that Paul declared as the worst of sinners, an abundance of grace was poured. I needed more than everybody because I really messed up in the past. How about your faith? You ever have doubts? Another question I get asked a lot. 
Pastor Bruce, I prayed the prayer. I believe that Christ came in my life, that he forgave my sins, but I'm, I'm just telling you, and it feels bad because, man, I've been a Christian for 10 years and I'm having doubts about my faith. You have an abundance of grace for your faith. Your faith is a gift from God. You didn't buy it. You didn't earn it. He gave it to you. You need more faith? He says, I'll give you more faith. Walk with me and I will pour out an abundance of grace on you that you need. Those of you are married, need any grace in your marriage? <laughs> Do I need grace? Have you met my husband? God's grace comes in abundance. When there's illness, when there's a financial shortfall, when the kids are crazy, when they all got runny noses and they're passing around their illnesses, God's grace comes in abundance. In your relationships, my single friends, everybody's got that friend that seems to be overly sensitive. And you're like, man, it's so draining. God's grace comes in abundance. Parents that are here, whoo, I'm looking at ones that got little ones and I got ones who got older ones and got the whole gamut here. And I know as a parent, over and over, you feel inadequate, you don't feel sufficient. And in those places where you feel overwhelmed, step into this place and remind yourself of the abundance of Grace, God has put you in the place that you're at. But there's a problem. There's a problem because probably most of us don't live and experience that. What, what, what is the problem? Well, Paul's gonna address that. Have you ever been confused about anything? Ever had a time where something didn't make sense and you're kind of scratching your head? I'll give you an example where this happened to me. So back in August, some of my buddies, we decided we were gonna get up early on a Monday morning. After Sunday, they wanna get up early in the Monday morning and meet at Classic Coffee at 6.30. So miraculously, I showed up about 6.20, happened to get there at the same time with one of my buddies. I said, hey, let me pray, pay for our, our coffee and anything you want to eat, some breakfast. He goes, okay, great. He goes, I'm, I'm going to have a cup of coffee and a pastry. I said, great. We get to the front of the line, we make our order. The clerk hands him his pastry and his cup of coffee, and then he hands me my cup of coffee over the register, and I set it down. And I have my credit card out, and he holds up this device over the register. And I'm thinking, oh, he, he wants me to put my card. It's a card scanner. So I, I put my card up to it, and he looks at me with a strange look. And then I said, these card scanners never work for me. And then he turned the device sideways and he goes, sir, this is a lid for your coffee cup. <laughs> Mystery solved. Well, of course it doesn't work. What's the point of that? Is that there are times where we don't understand. We, we, our eyes are not awake and open yet. That's some of you right now at the 930 service. And when it comes to grace, it's the same issue. We talk about grace all the time and we don't get it. It's a mystery. Look at, look at what Paul goes on to say. Verse eight, one more time, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. This is related to the grace, the abundance grace that's been given to us. He made known to us the mystery. I'm in verse nine. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. He made known to us the mystery of his grace. What was he talking about? 
He's talking about the fact that every one of us here in the room were raised in a world that we were taught you only receive what you've earned. You only receive what you've earned. Think about it. Nothing in life is free. That's wired into our head. And so some of you are struggling in your relationship with Christ is because you keep coming to Christ thinking that you've earned something from him. The worst mistake a person can do is to think they can earn their salvation. God, I've healed the sick. I've cast out demons. I've done miracles in your name. Jesus said to those folks, away from me, you doers of iniquity. I don't know you. I've never known you. You can't earn your salvation, and you can't earn God's favor. You can't say, man, I've been going to church for like five months. When are you gonna bring that special girl in my life? I keep going, and you're not showing up with her. <laughs> you laugh, but how many times have we gone to God, and we've asked, and then we present our ledger of what we've done and how we deserve his favor? We don't get the mystery of grace. And so what did God do? He presented the law. He said, if you want to gain my favor, be perfect. Paul in Galatians, you know what he says? He says, the law is a schoolmaster. It's an educator. It's a teacher. It reminds us, you're never going to be perfect. And so every time you run short in your parenting, your marriage, your work, or your ministry, God reminds you, ready for some more grace? Done being a perfectionist, trying to gain my favor and everybody else's? Are you ready for some more grace? We're like, bring it on. I am ready. I need it. So when we think about what God is doing, we need to realize that God's grace closes the gap. God's grace closes the gap. So spend some time on Wednesday, reflecting this question, what are the benefits of understanding God's amazing grace? Go to Ephesians. Spend some time in chapter two. Look at those first few verses where Paul will talk about, there was a time where we were enemies of God under his wrath. That is, we were under that punishment that we talked about. But that's no longer. Now you've been adopted in God's family and you've been given his grace and you were granted. Here's the amazing, you're granted glory. And he's gonna go on and talk about that in the next verse. So here's the third question, why? Why then did God do that? If this is what he's done and how he did it, why did he do it? It's simply this, God did it to keep his promise. God made a promise. Now allow me to back up to verse nine, read verse 10 so you see the whole context. Everybody with me, eyes on verse nine. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to be put into effect when times reach their fulfillment. He's talking about in God's perfect timing, Jesus Christ came. We could get into all the details in the background, the historical part, but, but I'm, not a, I'm gonna bypass that today and just let you know that he's referencing the perfect time that Christ put on flesh, came to the earth, and that was the time where he would die on the cross and pay for our sins and be resurrected. But go back to verse 10 to bring, this is what's important for us to realize, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, to bring unity in all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's such an abstract idea, and this is where I think many people get lost. So I wanna give you some ideas, some understanding of what this is and what it means to you. I'm gonna bring this passage on the screen. 
I've been referencing Hebrew. Hebrew is, is arguing for some of the same things that Paul is asserting here. Read this passage out loud with me from chapter two of Hebrews. Will you do that with me? Let's say it together. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. So if you're taking notes, you can write down Psalm 8, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. It's a Psalm of David. The writer of Hebrews, thousands of years later, is quoting from King David. When David wrote this Psalm, the context indicates he was thinking of himself. It's like a prayer to God. He's looking at creation. He's looking at the magnitude of the stars and, and the heavens and all that. And he says, how is it that you're mindful of me, that you know my name, that you care about me? I'm so insignificant. I'm just a son of man. And yet you made me just a little lower than the angels, these eternal heavenly beings. He didn't realize that when he said that, he was actually prophesying about the Messiah. In hindsight, the writer of Hebrews makes that assertion. That's what's happening here. In fact, if you look into the prophecies of the Old Testament, they would refer to consistently a title for the Messiah, the Son of Man. And so Jesus, when he comes to this earth, do you know what he refers to himself? He refers to himself in the third person, the Son of Man. He's constantly saying the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. He's the Messiah. So the writer of Hebrews is essentially asserting the idea that Jesus Christ of heaven, Lord of Lord, King of kings, eternal God, put on human flesh, humbled himself as a man, even unto death, came to live on this planet to know us, to understand us, and die to pay the penalty for our sins. But the promise always had been from God the Father that when he looked into eternity and he saw that we were gonna fail, the idea that Jesus Christ would go to the cross and die for our sins was planned. And the promise was, is that when you're resurrected, you will ascend back into heaven and you will sit at the right hand of my throne. And as it states, I will put everything under your feet. I will give you all authority and power. And this author will go on to say, that has not been fully experienced. Anybody notice that in our world? Have you noticed that not everybody submits to Jesus Christ as Lord and King? And some of you are concerned and worried about what's happened in the world, but I bring you back to the promise that God said that Jesus Christ is coming again, and when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Last week, two people made the choice to ask God for forgiveness. They realized they couldn't earn God's favor and invited God, Jesus Christ, into their life. They made a choice to bow their knee and submit to the king who's gonna bring everything into submission. He's going to bring heaven and earth together. He's gonna to align those things, but that has already begun. Think about Jesus when he taught the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who are in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What was he teaching us to pray? This very thing. That sin that has separated us, that you would resolve that and you would bring heaven and earth together. 
under your authority, your power, your love, your justice, and your care. And Paul is saying that Jesus has done that. Now, let me give you an example out of Scripture to make that tangible. If you're taking notes, you can write down Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. It's the story of Jesus in Capernaum. He's gone there, and he's at a friend's house, and he's teaching. And the crowds are enamored with him. They've heard of the stories of how he's healed the blind person and the lame person and the leopard, and he's cast out demons. And they're literally hanging on every word that he teaches. In this room that's probably by 20 by 20, it's standing room only. They're all crowding around, listening to everything he has to say to the point where people are pouring out into the street. They're on the threshold, leaning in, trying to hear what he has to say and hoping, just hoping that maybe there's gonna be a miracle. As the crowd continues to grow, four men show up with their closest friend who's a paralytic on a stretcher. They're carrying him on a stretcher. They've come because they've heard Jesus can actually heal those that can't walk, but they can't get anywhere near the door. They keep asking people, let us in. Our friend needs to be healed with no success whatsoever. Suddenly, one of them looks to the side of the house and there's a stairwell that goes up to the roof. And they have this idea, let's go to the roof. And so they carry their friend up. They set him there on the roof, the flat roof. And they begin to remove the tiles and the palm branches that are enmeshed. And they begin to dig away the mud. And pretty soon they can look through the beams and they see Jesus right below them. They make a big enough hole. They take some linens. They tie them to that stretcher. And they let him down to the floor while people are looking on, anticipating. You ask yourself, why did they do that? Because they're believing they're going to see a miracle. Make room. Let this guy in. Down he goes to the floor. Could have heard a pin drop. Jesus looks at the man, and everybody's waiting and anticipating, believing he's going to say, get up and walk. Come on, you can do it. And he says... Your sins are forgiven. What? That's not why he's here. Everybody in the room knows why he's here. He wants to be healed and walk. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Why? Why did he do that? He was aligning heaven and earth because sin separates these two. So you're thinking, okay, you got to have the forgiveness of sin. So then what? Well, Pharisees, Pharisees are appalled. The ones that are standing like, you can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. And you know what? They were spot on. Their only problem was they didn't know that Jesus really was God. So Jesus turns to them and he says, which is easier to say to a person, your sins are forgiven or to heal him and have him take up his mat and walk? He says, to prove to you that I am the son of man, I say to you, take your mat, get up, and walk. And everybody, it's two miracles. There was evidence that Jesus Christ came not only to heal our physical infirmities, but our spiritual infirmities and to bring heaven and earth together. So spend some time reflecting on this amazing aspect that you have been free. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2. 
You've been freed from the dysfunctions of your family in the past. You've been freed from your sins. You've been freed from condemnation. You, in Christ Jesus, have a landscape that says, live your life for the glory of God. And it all comes down to this one take on truth. Aligning with Christ avoids religion. Aligning your relationship with Christ avoids tasteless, dry religion. About two weeks ago, I came home and found a coffee can on the counter with tinfoil over it. I thought it was kind of odd because Monica only drinks coffee in the morning, two cups of coffee in the morning. And so when I came in, I was curious. I pulled the tinfoil off and there was pumpkin bread in it. I'm like, oh, this smells glorious. About that time she came down and she says, oh, did you find the pumpkin bread I made? I said, yeah, she goes, I found this really great recipe. You mix it up and you actually can put it in the oven in a coffee can. And I'm like, that's really cool. And then she says, I made it thinking of you. Oh, let's see, Tori likes that. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story, the point of the story is that it was about relationship, not getting the recipe right. See where I'm going with that? It's not you being perfect in your discipleship. It's not you having the perfect prayer life or the perfect Bible reading or the perfect worship. It's about you remembering it's about a relationship. And if you keep that in mind, you'll do everything right. Would you please bow your heads? Father, I, I, I'm going to assume whether in this room or those that are watching online, that there may be somebody who is in that category of they just continue to try to make you happy and gain your favor and earn their salvation. And if nothing else, would you help them to realize that they can't do that, it's impossible. It's the whole point of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to pay for our sins. Would you move in a supernatural way to help them to grasp that and just for a moment, perceive the amount of love that you have for them, that you would give your one and only son to die on a cross for them. Would you help them right now to pray and say, God, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for all the ways that I've done things that I'm regretful about and I've had guilt and I've had shame. Take that away from me. And instead, give me life, give me new life, give me eternal life. Give me the hope of salvation and heaven and a relationship with you. For all my friends that have prayed that prayer and have that gift, I want to pray for them that they live in this place. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That they would grow in the knowledge of your immeasurable grace for them. And they would choose to live in that place and offer the same grace to everyone else. It's in your son's precious name that I ask, amen.